In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. I first need to apologize that uh, you may have with eager anticipation seen somebody else's name in the sermon spot, spot this morning. Um, you'll be able to hear from the good deacon uh, in two weeks on Trinity Sunday, so mark your calendars for that. Um, John 17, which we heard from this morning, is often called the high priestly prayer. And I sometimes get the timeline confused and think that it takes place in Gethsemane. Maybe you do too, but it actually comes just after Jesus gives his final set of instructions to the disciples in the upper room. The text goes right from Jesus giving them this encouragement that he has overcome the world into this prayer, which in my mind puts it kind of in the same category as Jesus' prayer just before he raises Lazarus from the dead. You know, the one where he basically tells the Father, God, I know you hear me, but I'm praying out loud so the people around me can hear me as well. It's the kind of thing only Jesus can get away with, where you're praying, but actually you're just talking to people around you and masking it in prayer. Uh, I would not recommend that for any of you. Of course, we have no reason to believe that Jesus is anything less than earnest in his intercession. In this prayer, we, we hear Jesus give a kind of summary of his ministry, at least his understanding, his take on what he's been up to with regards to his disciples, making himself and the Father known to them, guarding and protecting them, he prays because they are about to go into the world, even though they are not part of it. This kind of dichotomy language that we see all over John's works in the New Testament, this in the world and not of the world kind of thing. And he's concerned. He knows what is coming for his disciples, the difficulties and challenges ahead of them, that evening, no less in the weeks and months and years to come. No longer following where he went, where he was able to directly intervene for them. Instead, they'd be going out where the Spirit would lead them. So part of his prayer is for their protection from the evil one and that they would be, quote-unquote, one. That they would be sanctified and have joy made complete in themselves. It reminds me a little bit of a commencement speech made by your favorite teacher where he understands what lies ahead even though you don't. Oh, you sweet, naive disciples about to head off into the great big world, if only you knew. When we fast forward past the ascension, though, the disciples are no longer naive but understand a bit more about the gravity of their calling. Just before the ascension, which fell on the church calendar last Thursday, I'm sure you all had private services among your homes, um, the disciples are still asking the resurrected Christ if he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel then, not even understanding exactly what was going on. But once Jesus ascended, some pieces start to fit together. Right away we have Peter standing up and acknowledging that what happened to Jesus by way of Judas had to happen to fulfill the scriptures. The disarray and confusion at the end of Holy Week is now seen as having purpose, or at least was part of a bigger plan. Judas' betrayal and Jesus' crucifixion weren't the foil to the coming of God's kingdom, but were necessary steps in bringing it about. The psalm that Peter quotes in the section that was clipped from the lectionary this morning, they're not very kind towards Judas playing out his necessary part, but we'll save that discussion for another day, which is probably why the lectionary cut it out to keep preachers from chasing down that tangent. But they do replace Judas. Why? They still have 11 perfectly good apostles and about 120 other disciples in tow. Why do they have to fill that extra slot? There's not an existing church bureaucracy where Judas was you know, in charge of the Department of Treasury and we needed a new treasurer. It's because while the 11 soon to be 12 disciples didn't yet have a clear strategy for what they were going to do, We'll get some of that next week at Pentecost. They did understand their identity. Twelve was the number because what God was doing through these twelve apostles 
was to continue the mission God had given to the 12 sons of Israel. God's work to use a people to be a light to the world and to draw humanity back to himself had been sealed and won through the victory of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and ascension. And now God would take these 12 Israelites to bring this good news of that redemption to the rest of Israel and in time the rest of the world. Their qualification for Judas's replacement was that this person had to be with them from the baptism of John, that is, John's baptism of Jesus, until the ascension. And it's kind of an interesting qualification, given that Jesus didn't call any of his disciples until he returned from the wilderness 40 days after his baptism. None of them were there from the baptism of John. In fact, in Luke's gospel, which serves as the prequel to Acts, Jesus had been spending time healing people and was even rejected in Nazareth before he calls any of his disciples. So this qualification is less about rejecting bandwagon fans who only showed up for the playoffs, as it were, but of the apostles identifying their work as a continuation of what Jesus was doing as Israel's Messiah, starting with his baptism and the declaration that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. To be a witness of the resurrection, the title that they use in this passage, was to declare the mission of Jesus in his, de- in his teaching, death, resurrection, and ascension. The people that Jesus prayed for, that he protected and guarded, upon whom the Holy Spirit would fall on Pentecost, those people were meant to be God's people, living out God's plan for the redemption of the world, which was accomplished through Jesus, who ascended in triumph to sit at the right hand of God. Jesus' work formed these people, unique from the world, separate from the world, to go out into the world to do his work. So 2,000 years or so later, who are those people now? Given this dichotomy of God's people and not God's people that we hear about, how do we recognize this son or daughter of God around us? Well, in John's first epistle, he lays it out pretty clearly. I'll read it again. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Simple, right? If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't. Paul makes a similarly simple statement that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God rose him from the dead, you will be saved. Perhaps baptism comes afterwards and a new and changed life is lived. But even with those additions, we actually don't want the requirements to be that simple. What we want to do is start getting out some other assessments and figure out if people are really saved after all. I mean, there are some pretty terrible people who have said that Jesus is Lord or given lip service to the Son of God, right? So... Maybe they actually have to believe a few more things. Maybe there's a little bit extra that we need to know. I once was told by someone standing outside of Moody Bible Institute trying to save all of us that if we didn't believe in eternal security, that, that Jesus, once we were saved, would never let us go. If we didn't believe in that doctrine, we didn't believe the words of Jesus and thus didn't believe in the Son of God and thus didn't have life within us. It was a very particular and unique, specific thing that we had to believe. But here it was, another layer, right? And we all do this to a certain degree. Believing the Son of God means more than just saying, I believe in the Son of God. Why do we do this? Well, for one, we get to judge people, which is fun. I didn't say good or virtuous, but I said fun. Fun can be bad, too. But apart from that, I think if we had to acknowledge that more people are daughters and sons of God, then we would have a difficulty on our hands. Because we're faced with Jesus' own prayer, the intercession in which, just before he went to the cross, He prayed that those who follow him would be one, 
And we have John's words testifying against us. Earlier in his epistle, he said that the thing that marks Christians from the rest of the world is our love for one another. That isn't, isn't to suggest that the earliest Christians assumed that the love they had for one another wasn't meant to love outside the church as well. The followers of Jesus grew quickly, in part because they went out and found the people least loved by society and took them in. Exposed babies who were left for dead, the elderly left for dead, and those with infectious diseases cast out by their families also left for dead. If you're looking for a consistent pro-life ethic, we've got a pretty good model in the earliest Christians. But we do find throughout the New Testament letters this charge that there should be something special about the love that Christians have for one another. That there's something unique and special about the bond that ties all of us who have the Son of God to everyone else who has the Son of God. But why would that be special? It's not as if the Roman Empire was devoid of dear friendships, of men and women who deeply cared and sacrificed for each other. I think the reason that the love that Christians are supposed to show for one another is distinctive has something to do with the fact that apart from this unique union found in Christ, there's no good reasons for these people to love one another. That apart from the bond we have in Christ, in our belonging to the Son of God, we have no good reason to love one another. When Simon the Zealot, who is committed to violently overthrowing the Roman Empire, and Levi the tax collector, exacting the Roman tax on Israelites, are among your 12 leaders, your founding 12 apostles, who are united by love and faith, there is something significant about your movement. Jesus himself talks about how praying for and loving those who loved you was not particularly virtuous, but just common to humanity. Even the Gentiles do that. It strikes me, some of the stories that came out after Supreme Court Justice Scalia passed away, all these pictures of he and Ruth Bader Ginsburg on vacations and hanging out together and loving each other's families. These people who were ideologically opposed had some sort of special bond in that chamber of the Supreme Court. And we'd hope that the body of Christ draws us even nearer than that, that our connection to the Son of God draws us even closer than being on the Supreme Court might. This is where we ought to feel a little bit ashamed of ourselves. Because as we know, Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Not only are churches and Christians often segregated by lines of race and culture, a complete opposite picture of what the Bible shows us, of what the kingdom of God looks like, where all nations are brought to the throne, but they're seg segmented by politics, social class, unimportant theological distinctions, and petty building disputes. This isn't a call for flattening out differences. I'm not saying we need to pursue a cheap unity which keeps its mouth shut and never insists on challenging a fellow believer who is living or teaching in a way that is inconsistent with the gospel. It's really easy for those of us who have come into Anglican churches post the events of the split in the early aughts to look on those who left the Episcopal Church and say, you guys just should have stuck around. I mean, I'm here now and enjoying this church, but you guys should have stuck around. It's very easy to cast that stone, but I'm very aware of the kind of pain and hurt that people felt when they perceived their church to have abandoned truth, and when they had no other option but to worship somewhere else. Sometimes that has to happen. Sometimes we can't live in true institutional unity with one another. But if Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, can both use his agreement with Peter as a defense of the legit legitimacy of his gospel, he says, I went to the apostles, and I told them what I was preaching, and we were in agreement. But then later he brags about the time when he called Peter out to his face for abandoning that gospel, all in the same letter. Maybe we can figure out ways to strive for unity while still calling out our fellow Christians when they are wrong. Maybe we can find ways to pursue unity with believers that we disagree with 
even on significant matters. Whether that matter has to do with the nature of the sacraments, women in ordination, questions of human sexuality, worship styles, aesthetics, I can go on. I'm not advocating for mergers with the Southern Baptists and the Episcopalians, but maybe there are ways that we can look at those people as brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe those people with whom we can no longer in good conscience celebrate the unity of Christ. Maybe we can look at them and say, despite this broken situation, maybe there is still an answer. Maybe there's still something we can do together. Otherwise, we're looking at people and adding a whole lot of extra steps between if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And our brothers and sisters who say the same thing. Maybe there are ways that we can do this. Because that unity across our differences speaks a great deal in an age in which division over every last disagreement is the norm. We, there was a, a picture after the election in 2016 that, that the Democrats would be this united front against Donald Trump. And what we found is that that group of people who had a similar problem when trying to figure out a solution instantly divided, instantly found ways to nitpick at each other. And we find this across all groups, right? Everybody, when they have a single problem that they're yelling against, can find a common enemy. But when you have to come up with a solution, when you have to start thinking of, this is a thing I'd like to do, suddenly you find new enemies here and there. And the purity of your ideas, because you have it perfectly right, gets in the way of doing anything at all. We see that all across the political spectrum. We see it in every institution. When the purity of your ideas is the necessary thing that causes unity, and there's nothing else, when everybody lives inside their heads and their doctrinal statements, we get into a lot of trouble. This isn't, again, to say that heresy is nothing and that we shouldn't care about right teaching. But maybe sometimes we've made right teaching and good teaching and preferable teaching and teaching that we happen to like, all the same category. When I showed a friend who's graduating from Moody just yesterday, I showed him this church for the first time. We went to the same Baptist church growing up. I could tell that it spooked him. <laughs> and he's a dear brother and he's gonna do excellent ministry and I have the utmost faith that God is working in his life. But without any exposure to a different tradition, the water, the magic water in the back, and this weird thing in the front looked very confusing. And it saddened me that I had this brother in Christ that I hadn't shared any of my life with, that I hadn't shared any of the beauty of what's drawn me to Anglicanism. And he didn't understand it, and because of that, there felt like this wedge in our brief visit. On top of that, on top of looking at others inside the church, maybe we can start to look at those with whom we agree on a host of other issues, but do not yet have the Son of God. Maybe we look at those people differently. Again, I've already ad-libbed and brought up politics, and it feels overplayed to bring it up again, but at the end of the day, if someone agrees with you about how to steer society in the right direction, whatever that direction may be, but they don't have Jesus in their life, you may have lots in common with them, but not the most important thing. You don't have to pretend like your Christian friends are all, by definition, closer than all non-Christian friends, but if we truly believe that those who have Jesus have life, and those who don't have Jesus do not, then we ought to pray for more opportunities to share that life with others. We ought to pray for more opportunities to make that one last crucial thing a thing that we have in common. Jesus prayed that his disciples would be one, and he sent them out to proclaim the victory that he had won for them. And their unity and love for one another was a testament to the work that God had done in their lives and was doing in the world. 
The early church understood that calling and formed themselves into this people who made God's relentless love for the world known, in part by the way that they loved one another. May God show us how to love fellow believers. May we find ourselves united more closely to them in spirit, maybe even in mission. And in doing so, may more and more people come to have the life of the Son of God. Amen.